Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed listening to any or all of the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's show is Ryan D., whom I've attended meetings with since he first got sober a little more than two years ago. Ryan's story is not dissimilar to many people who've appeared on this podcast. That his father was an alcoholic and seldom home meant Ryan and his brother were raised largely by his mother. The physical and verbal abuse inflicted on Ryan by his dad during his formative years abruptly stopped upon his father's suicide when Ryan was in middle school. Seeking solace and support from the Catholic Church in which he'd grown up, Ryan's tragedy elicited no sympathy from the largely indifferent priest who missed the opportunity to help a grieving adolescent. Marred by that event, Ryan's religious and spiritual life was fractured and became one of reckless abandon. Ramping up his drinking and pot smoking after his father's death, Ryan's life was one of alcoholic and drug-addled chaos for decades to come, with the associated wreckage of relationships and careers. As his life was caving in around him, his wife started attending Al-Anon, a clear signal to Ryan that he'd likely lose the marriage, along with everything else, if he didn't get sober. He chose AA recovery and has never looked back. He ensconced himself in the active middle of the program, working the steps, attending meetings, having a spiritual awakening, and working with others. Personally, it's been a joy to watch Ryan's progress over the past couple of years. I believe Ryan's story will resonate with listeners on many levels, especially for those in young sobriety. His simple and straightforward approach to AA will be both instructive and encouraging. For those listeners with more time in AA, Ryan's story is sure to trigger reminiscences of early sobriety. So, relax and settle in for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Ryan D. I'm Ryan and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ryan. That's usually what I say in return. It works out pretty good. I really appreciate you doing this tonight, especially after the meeting we just had in which you got your two-year chip because your birthday was actually... Uh, Thursday. Thursday, right. Yeah. So um, to, to be sitting down with you on your birthday, getting the chip is is really special to me. I've been in meetings with you since almost the time at which you came in. I don't know, you mm-hmm. had what, maybe three or four months sober. Yeah. But okay. So I met you shortly after you got out of aftercare, but came into that meeting that we go to mm-hmm. on Saturday nights, which has really, I think, been a real solid meeting for, for me. Yeah, it's my favorite, Is it? actually. So how does it feel? How does two years feel to you? Well, you know, I was looking down at the, the two-year chip after they gave it to me and uh-huh. uh, teared up a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, I've never been sober this long, Yeah. ever. Hmm. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will say, as you go through sobriety, there's a lot of firsts mm-hmm. and a lot of things that you never could have imagined to happen are, are now happening, right? You know, at the end, before I went into treatment the second time, I thought I was going to die like that. I just thought that's how my life was going to end. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to be a mess. I was going to be just, you know, depressed and, and in pain and sick all the time. Hmm. 
it's surreal to know that that's the truth, right? To look down and know that I've been sober for, for two years. And um, the craziest part about it is I feel like obviously there's been a lot of work. Sure. But f- for me to take any majority of that credit would be insane. Uh, I've had so much help. I've had a lot of help from, you know, from above and, and people in the program. Well, that's what this whole program is about, is the help. This has always been meant to be a we program. I went into it thinking it was a me program. I, it looked like every other self-help program I'd ever seen. You know, everything was codified on the walls. And, but it wasn't until I was sober about a year that I really got the idea that this is not a program I can work by myself. And it sounds to me like you've found that same thing to be true. Oh, yeah. I, I rely heavily on, on my sponsor, you know, the book, and really just having a routine of uh, waking up and trying to look at every day as a gift, because it really is. And, and I never looked at life that way. It was like a chore, you know, like I have to do this. I got to wake up again and <laughs> do this all over again, Every, you know. But, you know, in terms of people helping me, it's my sponsor really does a lot in the way of sounding back to me things that I probably know in my mind, but until I hear him say it, 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 it rings more true. What do you feel like sponsoring you does for him and his sobriety? Well, I, he always says uh, after every time we get ready to, to hang up on the phone, he says, uh, thanks for helping me stay sober. Or Ryan, you helped me stay sober today. He's great. I mean, I could go on and on about him. And I think that's why... It, our relationship works so well is because I trust him. I trust what he says, and he always has an answer for me. He always at least gives me something to think about. Did you ever have that before in your life? Did you ever have a, another man in your life that you could trust wholeheartedly? You know, I, I would say probably my brother. Mm-hmm. We weren't always too open about our feelings and, and things like that. Not until later in life, and especially now in sobriety, have we started to talk and really have uh, some quality um, exchanges. I went to my first meeting in 2015 Yeah. Uh, in May. That was after I found out my wife was going to Al-Anon meetings, huh. and I had no idea. How long had you guys been married by that point? About three years. So most people don't just go joining Al-Anon if there isn't a good reason. No. What was going on? What was going on within your marriage and within your home that made her decide to seek out Al-Anon? I was drunk every night. She made the comment to me one time. Uh, I would always hit a liquor store and get a, a fifth of uh, like some kind of bourbon. Mm-hmm. And she mentioned one time that. I would be opening the bottle at the counter in the kitchen before I even set my keys down. I, I didn't realize it. You know, I think there was a lot of there was a lot of staying up late and isolating. You know, with her going to bed at some point and realizing that I probably wasn't going to be communicative at all. You know, just not someone that she would want to talk to. Did you drink to pass out, or did you usually pass out when you were drinking? Yeah, I mean. I remember times just being up and my whole body being completely numb mm. and just everything being kind of blurry. And then I'm kind of liking that feeling, knowing that, that something else was shutting me down. 
was doing what it always did. So you wanted it to shut you down. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. What was your early life like? You mentioned a brother. Yeah, so I have an older brother. He's, mm -hmm. he's five years older than me. You know, growing up, we belonged to a Catholic church, mm -hmm. and we went to a Catholic elementary school, yeah. You know, my mom took really good care of us. But my dad, I just didn't see him a whole lot. He worked on a riverboat. So we lived in southeast Missouri, so mm -hmm. he would work on a riverboat and would be gone. Yeah, I think it was like three weeks at a time. It could have been a month. Mm -hmm. But it was like a long period of time, and then, and then he would be home for two weeks. Hmm. And usually during those two weeks that he, he was home, I'm tempted to, to just lead off with, with the bad part. But the truth is that we did go on canoe trips. We did do things, but um, just didn't see him a whole lot. It must have been really tough for you as a child. I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything else. I remember having birthdays, and my mom was always there. Mom and grandma were always there. But... I just don't recall him being there. Mm. And, I, and I think that's the truth. It's not something, you know, nothing specifically bad happened. Yeah. It was just, he, he wasn't there. How did that make you feel at the time? A little part of me knew there was something wrong with him. Something wrong with him? Yeah. Perhaps an addiction? Or... I knew that he drank. Uh -huh. I, he drank beer. Like everybody, right. everybody's dad's drank beer so i thought and he would also he would have friends over and in the basement they would smoke weed mm -hmm. down there and mm -hmm. so i knew what that smell was from a very early age they went in this this room specifically to do it and so <laughs> you know what i mean I, I was a little kid but it I, I think i knew that there was something special about it so you were raised mostly by your mom yeah so you went to catholic school mm -hmm. your, your brother's five years older your mom mm -hmm. was raising you guys mm -hmm. Dad, was this for the duration of your childhood and adolescence that he wasn't around, or was there a point at which you were able to see him more? He had had a, a job at a butcher shop in town mm -hmm. and decided to buy the butcher shop, mm -hmm. which seemed odd to me, but, you know, that's what he wanted to do. Mm. And so, you know, this would have been the late 80s. You know, at that time, he worked a lot, and then... At some point, it had me coming in there, and I don't know if you've ever been in a butcher shop where the the cattle or the heads of beef come in in the back live, and then they come out. You know, it's a full processing thing. Oh my! And I just he had me cleaning the walls and stuff because a lot of people don't know this, but like a lot of times farmers will will feed the cattle because they get weighed as soon as they get there. Yeah, yeah. And so they'll feed them, and then they they defecate all over the place in the back. And how old were you when you when you started working there? This had to have been like seventh, sixth or seventh grade. So here you go from a situation where you're being raised by your mom. Your dad's not there because he's on the riverboat. Then he buys the butcher shop, but you said he worked long hours. Yeah. Outside of seeing him at the butcher shop, did you see him very much at home? No, I, I don't recall him coming home a whole lot. That's tough. Yeah, I, I just don't. I, I don't think that's... I don't think that's something that I'm making up. Well, that's something that a seven-year-old can know or a five- or a ten-year-old can know. Mm -hmm. Your father's either home or he's not home. But my dad was home, but I wished he wasn't okay. because he was so nasty when he was home. 
there were times at which I wished he wouldn't come home. The flip side of that is the dad's never home. For me, sometimes the, the bad relationship at least was a relationship. But if the dad isn't even there, how do you, what do you do? Yeah. So how did you cope? It's, I guess, what I'm asking. Before you found drugs and or alcohol. You know, Howard, it doesn't seem like it bothered me. Like, mm-hmm. I just thought that's how it was. And I don't remember thinking to myself, like, how am I going to deal with this? Until, you know, there were fights between he and, and my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember thinking that something wasn't quite right. But, you know, I spent a lot of time at my friend's house, houses, you know, a lot of time in my room just <laughs> playing with toys or, or games or whatever. I don't remember having to cope. I, I remember praying a lot. Do you? Yeah. What kind of prayers did you have? I prayed the rosary. You know, now that I mention that, I, I think... I was praying because there were problems, right? I was asking God to make things okay between my mom and dad. I mean, I can't remember anything specific except one night, um, I guess he was in town at a at a bar or something, and my mom put me and my brother in the, in the car, and, and she drives down. It was like something out of a movie. She drives mm-hmm. up to this place, and he's standing there like with a smile on his face, and I think I, I could tell he was like definitely under the influence that time. But, like, my brother and I are in our pajamas. Hmm. I think he was probably home. This may have been the time when he was on the riverboat. He was spending his time at, while he was home out partying at the bar. My brother and I sat in the car and watched all of this. And my mom gets out and is, like, in tears, like, yelling at him. And, and he was just kind of, like, and it seemed kind of indifferent and probably, like, a little embarrassed. But... You know, when you're under the influence, yeah. it's easy to, to blow stuff off. And I think that he would just kind of, was like, leave me alone. So he wasn't violent towards her or anything like that? No. Yeah. That's tough, though. You know, you're sitting there as a little kid and you have to watch that. No child should have to go through that. I, I had the opportunity oftentimes as a child to watch my parents fight and my dad yell and my mother cry. And, you know... As much as you try and not let it bother you, either by being distracted by other things or retreating into your own little world, it doesn't not bother you. It, it all, there's something about it that's always wrong, that was wrong at the time, that was wrong in memory. And looking back in it, you can see where it was wrong. But mm-hmm. these, yeah, I don't know if your parents were like my parents, but that's the best they knew with what to do with what they had, you know. Yeah, I think that was the case. When you got to the fourth step, were you able to process any of the stuff about your about your parents or some of the things? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, In what ways did that help you? Well, I want to start by saying that my fourth step was probably one of the most enlightening things I've ever done in my life. Really? I I think I I remember calling my sponsor. I was like halfway through. I like, man, this is great, and he's like. What do you mean? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I, I started to see how I was at the center of all of this. Yeah. This was all about my perception and my reaction to things. Yeah. Uh, but it was also a chance for me, after what I had been through, to kind of um, know what my dad went through. Yeah. Because I was doing it. You know, I, I had done it. I had all the way up to that, to the edge. 
kind of walk us through, if you wouldn't mind, the trajectory from being a, a little kid with all this going on at home and what it was like for you in school and when you when it was that you took your first drink on your own volition, where, where you had the choice to take the drink and you took the drink. There was this, uh, it was like a pint of Seagram's dry gin that was just up in the cabinet. It was up there forever and I think this was before before my dad died. But some friends were over, and I was like, oh, let's, you know, drink some whatever. And I got it down and started swigging it, started feeling good, and just I remember having a good time. Did your friends drink along with you? No. They were just watching you Yeah, drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting friends. <laughs> <laughs> so that detail's not as important as them kind of like chasing me around because I started acting really not not violent or mean. I was having fun. Yeah, so they were taking advantage of the fact that, that you were becoming a silly guy. Yeah, I think they enjoyed it. What did you learn from that? I realized that there was kind of a, a release that you could get from drinking, especially some, some strong liquor. I don't know, it just made me feel kind of free and uninhibited. Like it had an effect. Did you get sick or did you? No, I, no, I didn't get sick. So you had this great time with your friends chasing you around. Mm -hmm. You felt good. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good experience to have first time you drank. How old were you then? I'd have to be 12 okay. or 13. You mentioned about your dad passing away. So that was 1992. I was in eighth grade. Do you mind me asking the circumstances of his passing? Sure. So New Year's Eve of 1991, I went over to a friend's house. We stayed up, ate pizza, drank soda, whatever, mm -hmm. and watched the ball drop. And I don't remember what my mother was doing, but they, they may have gone out that evening. So I come home. This is after midnight, and I remember it being strange that my, my dad was home. He was on the couch in his nice clothes. TV was on. He was sleeping. I don't know if my mom was in bed. Um, so my, I remember my thought was, he's home. And I felt safe mm. and relieved mm. like and a little surprised so much that I, I remember seeing him there peacefully mm. in his nice clothes. And I remember going to bed, and that was the last time I saw him. Hmm. And that's a good memory. The next day comes, he's gone. So I don't know if he left in the morning or if he woke up in the middle of the night or like hmm. early morning and left or what. A couple days went by and I didn't. So I think this is like January 3rd or 4th. So my brother's at college and home for Christmas break or whatever. The next thing I remember, my mom sitting, he and I down and saying, uh, your, your dad's missing. We, I don't know where he is. I haven't seen him in like, um, it's normal for him not to be there. So I could tell by the way my mom told us that she was worried. Yeah. And then that was really hard for her to have to tell my brother and I. But I remember thinking, I didn't know any better. I just thought, you know, maybe he went hunting or maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's out and just yeah. didn't, you know, this is before cell phones and stuff. So, so it was nothing unusual for him to not be there. That's right. I think it may have been the next day, mm -hmm. the um, police knock on the door and um, my mom goes with them. Mm. 
and comes back, like, it couldn't have been, it was like maybe 30 minutes. Mm. And comes back, and uh, I just remember her uh, coming in the house and crying and saying, your daddy shot himself. Oh. Man, you don't, you hear that in the first I, you know, I don't know if it's different for other people, but if you didn't know it happened and someone says it, says it like that, you want to believe that, I don't know, your mind's just reaching for that not to be the truth. You know, that he locked himself in his truck and shot himself in the head, right? Like it was an accident or something. It was an yeah. accident. You know, I mentioned being in the basement where the drawer was and there being a revolver in there. During that day, after we, my brother and I knew, my mom asked us to go downstairs and look for that revolver, and it was not there. She knew it was there. Yeah, she knew it was down there, but maybe for some reason knew that we would know exactly where it was or that I would. And I remember it was like in this, this plastic bin with some maps and stuff that you used to take um, to go in the river and stuff. Um, and it wasn't there. I'm sorry. That's a tough thing for a kid to have to go through. No, no one thinks that's going to happen. Especially when you're, what, 13, 14 years old? Mm-hmm. How did you process that at that age? Or what help did you receive? Or were you just left with your feelings as they were? I was pretty much left with my feelings. We all talked about it later on that we probably all should have gotten some grief counseling or something. But I don't know if it just like culturally or, or whatever, because of the way our family was, we didn't, it was just, we were so devastated by it that I don't know, how's, how's someone going to help you besides telling you, you know, he was a good man or, or, you know, he's with God now or whatever, which in my case, being a Catholic, I'm thinking he wasn't Catholic, but still, you know, in my brain, you know, the kid praying a rosary by himself, having that faith and believing what they teach about that, right? You know, no one enters the kingdom of God unless God calls them. So suicide is a sin. Yes. You don't get in by checking out. That changed my world. I think my grandmother, who's devoutly Catholic, she was like, why don't you go talk to Father... Uh, Pat or whatever it was. I was like, okay. And I, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I go over there and like show him that I'm trying to give of myself or something, I don't know what it was, but the conversation, I mean, he kind of just sat across from me, like you're sitting across from me now. And it was just kind of indifferent and was like, that's just how it is. I, I don't remember getting anything from that. And I remember leaving there and feeling mm. so alone and like, of course, I, I mean, I'm a kid, so you want to hear something, something to grab onto. I didn't get anything. And I remember thinking, if this can happen to me, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to do things my way. You know, I'll be reckless. I mean, I didn't know how far that was going to go. But, I, you know, even at a young age, I just thought, well, if this can happen, the sky's the limit. And um, 
I'm just going to see what I can get away with. That's kind of like what, how I walked away. And I don't know why. It sounds like a pivotal moment for you. It was pivotal, yes. At the very time that a few words of encouragement and sympathy and empathy could have made all the difference in the mm-hmm. world, you were faced mm-hmm. with indifference or not being heard or not being understood or whatever. That's, that's oh man, that had to been a tough time for you. It was. It still is. So here you were at this pivotal point in your life when a few words of encouragement or support or understanding or sympathy would have made all the difference in the world. You didn't get it, and your first thought was, all bets are off. Well, everything I believed in, I don't believe in. Yeah. If this can happen, then what difference does it make if I do anything I want to do? Is that the kind of reckless abandon you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Reckless abandon would be a good way, I think, to put it. I mean, I've heard that term before, but I'd never really thought of it that way. It was kind of like, uh, you're on your own, kid. We'll figure things out for ourselves. I, I continued and, and finished uh, eighth grade, right? I, I remember it being very gray, and I was very depressed. Yeah. It was so deep and, like... I mean, nothing like this had ever happened to me. Like, I, and I didn't know anyone else yeah. that this had happened to. You know, I guess mm. it made me feel special. Like the rules don't apply to me anymore. <laughs> that, that kind of special. I, I would say probably later in that later in that year, I would be starting high school at the public school. But that's when it started. Did any of the friends that you had at the time or any of your schoolmates or teachers, did they express any support or did they give you anything that you needed at that time? I think it was like condolences. Well, people don't know what to say. Yeah, they don't. They really don't. What you said was also true that none of them had ever gone through that probably themselves. Right. You know, I just heard he was a good man a lot. And so I also started... I think I developed this this mistrust in people because he didn't physically abuse me or anything, but he was I was terrified of this man. Hmm. And um, and so when I was much younger, there were a lot of cases where I got into trouble, and you know there was he slapped you around. Yeah, and like not on the I never got hit in the face right. or anything, yeah. but like really really aggressive. You know, I had a reason to be afraid of him. Because, you know, being that he was an alcoholic and, and drug addict, um, you know, I didn't know that that played into having rage and aggression. And I, I saw a lot of instances where he would get mad. Mm. And I kind of learned it from him, mm. you know. I think before, before my alcoholism had really taken over, I would, I would get angry. <laughs> stuff yeah. in much the same way you know it's true you don't realize it but you you mimic what your dad your mom and dad do later in life you realize that you did it yeah. and you're like holy i didn't intend to it's just the tough part about that too is that you normally realize it or recognize it after you've already done the behavior where I'd look back and I'd see my dad in some of my behavior. I'd see my mom in some of my behavior. It, it, it's recognizable. The good thing you and I have, we've got a program where we can process a lot of that stuff. So once this reckless abandon becomes your marching code, where do you go with that? In high school, um, I gravitated kind of toward the guys that were, I don't know, smoking weed or yeah. 
or drinking. And I played football. Uh-huh. And so that kind of, there were, there were parties and, and my mom, um, uh, would started to date. Yeah. Sometimes that would, um, leave me at home by myself. Um, my brother is back at school. And, um, so I had a lot of time at, at home over the next, all through, all through high school, really. Hmm. And so I started to connect with the people who were doing stuff we weren't supposed to do, yeah. which by the way, I, there was something I liked about doing things, stuff I wasn't supposed to do. I started to associate and roll around with, you know, some of the people uh, on the football team and then found out who (laughs) the people who were uh, into sports, but also drinking and doing drugs and the stoners. Yeah. And, and one and the same in a lot of cases. I mean, and uh, as far as I was concerned, everybody was doing this. Like everybody's parents did it. It was just, it's just what you did. Like you looked for opportunities to, to get wild. Comparatively, did you see, did you see yourself engaging in it to a, a greater extent than the people around you? Did, were you aware of that or were you just kind of keeping up with the crowd? I think I kept up with the crowd as much as I could. It was doing it. And then I, I think a lot of people kind of saw a difference in me. Yeah. I'm not sure what they saw, but I, I do know that you know, when I first started drinking, I would, I would drink, I would get drunk. The room would spin. Yeah. Like that's, that's how much I would drink. And this is just like, I, I'm at this point, I'm afraid of liquor for whatever reason. So this was like a lot of light beer, but you know, at this time people smoked weed too, but I found it hard to get a hold of for some reason. Yeah. And not until later in high school that I actually get high from it. Yeah. But also quickly discovering that if I had had alcohol and then I smoked, I'd be sick. Yeah. Be on the ground, like spinning, throwing up, like, pat, like actually passing out just from being over overwhelmed by the two combined. So you could do one or the other and be okay? Well, what I figured out was if, if I could, if I would smoke first and then drink up to my level, I was, I, I could be okay. Yeah. And, and, and in which case I really didn't drink all that much because my mouth would be so dry and it just wasn't as appealing. However, if I was four or five, six beers in and then got high and you like, you don't know what kind of stuff they got. I mean, one, one hit could just wipe me out. And, uh, and so I was really careful of that. Mm. So in the midst of all this, you're, you're, you're being somewhat vigilant about your own intake, and you, you've at some point learned the formula for weed and alcohol working for you. I was, I was very careful. Uh, I, th- I feel like the alcohol made me feel more like what I wanted to feel mm-hmm. like than the weed yeah. did. So it sounds like alcohol was really became your go-to at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Once I started to actually buy the marijuana mm-hmm. um, and like smoking it on my own at night, yeah. I, people noticed a change in me. Like um, 
it kind of uh, accentuated my depression. Like people, I don't know, people could tell. Yeah. And, you know, at this time, like the, the drinking was so underestimated, like that, that, you know, drinking beer every weekend or sometimes like during the weeknights, right? Because I, I could, you know, that that was going to affect, you know, it, and now as I'm saying it, 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 I'm sure it did have an effect on, on my emotional development and, and everything. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So you were smoking weed at night. Yeah. And you were drinking with your friends. Yeah. So what comes next? Yeah, I, I start college and um, I guess the fall of 96. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it this way. It was like I, I got dropped off at the dorm, and I think it may have been that same night that I got there. I had already found Yeah, and I remember it was in someone else's dorm room, and we're getting high already, and I'm thinking, like, dude, you haven't even – gone to a class yet. <laughs> That's great. And you're high already. <laughs> and so like you're talking about, you, you smoke the weed because it's going to make you feel good, but then you don't think about that, the way that feeling kind of morphs oh, yeah. and, and, and changes. And then you get into like, start thinking about like what you're doing. Like, oh God, is, is this right? This doesn't seem right. Like, yeah, the, as soon as I got there, I, I was hooking up with, with the people who, who partied. It's just—it's natural. I've, I've I've heard other people talk about you know you you can you can find them. What kind of student were you during those years? <laughs> you know, I'll say I always had a lot of trouble with math. Yeah. Even in grade school, and I tried and I tried, and all my friends seemed to get it, and I just never did. And that went all the way through high school. At which point, right, I started drinking and doing drugs in high school and so started to not really just kind of gave up on it and was like oh whatever I'll deal with that later I mean in high school it's like a B minus when I got to college it was like now this is kind of serious because you have to like pass these classes and I struggled I struggled with math um you know my English and my writing skills were were good really good and always had been all the way um, through that, but it was always like my, my math grades would always bring my GPA down. Yeah. I had to take intermediate algebra twice when I got, got to college and still barely got through that. Mm. You know, that kind of dictated what I was going to be able to do as far, as far as a degree, right? For me, math was, 
you get to the test, everything's different. Like, what? This isn't <laughs> what I studied. And I did study and I tried, but uh, that was frustrating. So I got an art history and archaeology degree. Um, but, you know, at the time, I was not thinking about a career. And that's hard to admit, Howard. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, I went to, you know, I got my undergrad and political science and then went to law school. Dude, I'm just grateful I got through. And thanks to my mom for, for encouraging me when I wanted to drop out very, very close to the end. Like I only had about a year left and I was just yeah. decided I wanted to be an auto mechanic. I, I was always into cars, but didn't really know anything. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought I wanted to be a car designer, but you know, there's, yeah. there's math involved in that. And <laughs> You know, telling myself you can't do this because yeah. X, Y, Z. I mean, that was pretty much like, well, you can't do this, so you're going to have to like kind of just bounce off of this and then bounce off of this and see where you end up, right? Uh-huh. My grandfather was a mechanic. I feel like I was just naturally inclined. I could I could uh-huh. make stuff and build things, and you know, I want to learn. I want to learn everything about how this works. Mm-hmm. I was signed up for a program that started two weeks after I graduated college. That was August of 2001, late August. And I was home for two weeks. I, I remember kind of thinking, at least I'm getting ready to go learn something that I'm going to be able to apply and I'll actually... Um, and have a trade. And have a trade. Yeah, Thank I you. get that. So you went to uh, mechanic school. How, how long did you do that it was 11 months. Uh-huh. But I, I'll say this about this program. Um, this was a place where you you were there every day. Yeah. You could not. There was no like, hey, I'm going to skip class today and then show up for the, show up for the um, discussion section and take the quizzes or whatever. This was like they took attendance. If you were not there you got docked on your grades mm-hmm. like it, it was serious it was, it was serious, serious yeah stuff. i remember thinking like this is going to be like a full-time job because it was like seven hours a day yeah. as opposed to where i used to be able to like like look at check look at my schedule and sometimes kind of know when the quizzes were there were times in college when i showed up it's like that a lot of people talk about having this dream where you show up and there's a test that happened to me like <laughs> But, um, you know, this was going from that where you could kind of just blow things off and, and get by to like being having to show up on time. But I applied myself and I, I didn't really feel like I did that in college. And I applied myself because I was interested in what I was learning. So I started in 96 and I graduated in 2001, right. August. So it took me five years. Five yeah. years, yeah, uh-huh. to graduate. And so. I believe when I started tech school, I was like 23. Yeah, so you were still pretty young. Yeah. You know, I lived by myself. I had apartments. Uh-huh. Part of the, my college years, I, I lived by myself. And I think that's kind of when I started to, to kind of change the way I felt, like on my own, with no one around. So this is all happening when you're starting to work as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. So what do the next number of years look like for you? The year, like doing the 11 months yeah. uh, of, of that program, I started to drink beer every night. Mm. And that was like my nightly thing. I'd get out of school, I'd drive home, and I'd stop at, a, at the Osco or whatever um, uh-huh. and get 
tall, six pack of tall boys and I drink every one of them mm. every night. And um, so I think that's when like I found something that worked that I could still like didn't feel all that great the next day. But hey, I was going to I was going to change the way I felt as soon as school was out. Yeah, I get right. that. You know, but at that time, um, I was abusing some other substances like Ritalin, mm-hmm. um, which if I had some on the weekend and then there was some left over, the effects would linger into the week because it's a stimulant. Yeah, it's very yeah it stays in your system. It stays in your system. And if, and if you've got it, it's like, it's like cocaine. Like you, you got it. You're gonna you do it. it. You you'll do it till it's gone. Right. Right. Like um, you might have some. Like if you're taking a pill, you might have a little bit of control over the portion. But still, it's by the nature of what it is. You're gonna do it till it's gone, and then you're gonna crash. And you're gonna crash. Um, so that that's at a time when uh, I was combining those two. And did, and you got it, you found yourself a job or the basic program was eleven months and then they have graduate programs where you could study on a manufacturer's yeah. uh, factory training program mm-hmm. and I chose Mercedes. Mm. I when I remember went out one day and I went to like I just drove down the road to the dealership put a tie a nice shirt on and a tie uh-huh. and I walked in there and I had a job when I walked out. Wow. Um, and then that was ended up. Continued, like once I finished the program, I stayed there. They paid for my school. Mm-hmm. I, I learned so much at that place. During that time when I got the job, uh, I had my first apartment by myself. And um, started to do um, cocaine and, and found it to be really available. Uh, Actually, in the in the workplace, so I would go to work and see my guy, and he would just come by my toolbox and be like, "You need something?" And I would just be like, "You know, this is hard to talk about, Howard. Um, you know, a gram, eight ball, whatever." And uh, so there went your paycheck. Well, I. I now, you know, there was one Friday, he would front it to me, and I remember one Friday I had to hand him $800 um, for, for what I needed for that weekend and to get caught up with what I owed him. And I remember him telling me, he's like, I don't want any trouble, man. You owe me 800 bucks. And he was right, I owed him 800 bucks. And that, on that occasion, it was pretty much my paycheck. Were you for, snorting on the job then? Yeah. So cocaine starts at this time. You're working, so at least you can afford to pay for it. You did that for three years. Yeah, yeah. And so with the cocaine, right, yeah. I, I had a girlfriend who was um, coming to visit me. Mm-hmm. She was also kind of the source of the Ritalin. You know, I was relying on her for that. Mm-hmm. And then I found how easy it was to get the cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so that's when my alcohol consumption went from... I'm going to get like a 12-pack of Heineken or a 12-pack of beer to like I'm getting a fifth of Knob Creek. Okay. Something really strong. I mean, it could have been Stoli, you know, the 100 proof or whatever. Uh Stronger the better because I needed that to – I mean, you would waste your time drinking beer when you're doing (laughs) – Ritalin. When you're doing cocaine or Ritalin and you're up all night, it's not even going to put a dent in it. So you moved to the hard stuff. 
yeah, it, it started with the heavy stimulant use. And I'm sure a lot, anybody could tell you who's done that will be like, you got to have something strong to, to balance that out because you're going to be up all night. If you've got enough, you're going you're to be up all night. You might be up two nights in a row. You might be up three nights in a row. It's a hard way to live. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Did you sense that you were having a problem at this time? Yes. I mean, how it, it really started to affect my mental state. Uh -huh. I lived on Ogden Avenue, and, and the dealership was on the same street. So I would basically leave my apartment, get on the road, and I could just track straight to work. And, you know, I remember looking at myself in the mirror, and my eyes were just... I yeah. Mean, and I remember some days I would get almost all the way to work and I would turn around huh. and go back home because I was just, I was like, I mean, the, the feeling like when you've been up all night and you know that you, like your last drink was at like, I don't know, five and four or five in the morning and you're still and then you know that you're going to be coming down if from the cocaine if you don't have any, it's like you ain't going to make it through the day. And if you do, it's going to be a royal shit show. And at, at this time, I remember driving through this one intersection where I'd seen people like run the red light. And there were days when I would, the light would be green and I'd be coming through that intersection and I wish someone would just like take me out because I felt so terrible, like physically and mentally, just like the depression and, the, you know, like not sleeping. And uh, that takes a toll, like... It makes you very irrational. Yes, and it can make you think things that... Well, suicidal. I mean, you know, like you just said, you know, mm -hmm. wishing someone would run the light and, and crash. Mm -hmm. So when you acknowledged that that was going on, did you try to seek any help or...? No. So I, it got to the point where I was, like, missing a lot of work. I was starting to get into it with my bosses. Yeah. They'd had to know something was up with me. I mean, it was like one of those things where, like, people would look at me and they would smell me. Yeah. It got to the point where um, I I couldn't make my rent anymore. I got behind on my rent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, I got to get away. I got to remove myself from the situation. I'm not going to survive this if I stay here. Mm. There's a very important factor. My wife... Now, mm -hmm. we had, um, we met in college, we had gone out on a couple of dates, and I, one in particular, and um, I had uh, some cocaine, and she saw it, and I mean, she said to me, um, you know, Ryan, I, I don't know anyone who's ever done that who didn't have a problem with mm -hmm. it. And later on, I, we kind of, I think she distanced herself from me, um, and this is after, I think I had made a commitment in my mind and my heart, yeah. like she was the one. I, here I am in this apartment in the suburbs of Chicago mm -hmm. and thinking about her and, you know, that all of these things came to, there were a lot of factors that came together. And the fact that I knew that she had kind of decided to be with someone else because, I mean, I was yeah. probably dangerous. I was a rat, like not what she wanted, you know. At least not in that state. Yeah. And then uh, it was like April of 2006. She calls me out of nowhere and um, I guess just calls to see what's going on with me. 
And I that some, something clicked, and I was like, you got to get out of here. And so I moved to St. Louis. You know, at the time, I think she was in, she was in Missouri somewhere, and we, we started to um, see each other. Uh-huh. Kind of right after that, I went to a wedding by myself and um, got really intoxicated and then um, wrecked a car pretty ba- really bad and then ran from the police, mm-hmm. got arrested, put in jail for the night with a DWI. And I remember calling her and t- to tell her what I did, right? Um, because we weren't, we weren't living together, but um, I, I was in St. Louis by myself again. Right. You know, you know, all by myself in an apartment. So, um, you know, didn't have anyone, no, no accountability to act right or, you know, that didn't, she stayed, I mean, she, she, she stayed with me. She was in D.C. doing an internship at the time. And I guess after this stuff happened, I'm like, I need to remove myself from this situation and go where she is because she's now, like, um, giving me the sign that, I mean, we're, we're a thing. And, and, and so I, I moved to, to Washington, D.C., um, while well, she was doing an internship, and uh, I got uh-huh. a job there doing what I do at a, at a dealership in uh, Arlington. And so we got a place together there. And I remember how excited I was that, you know, we were going to be uh-huh. living together. And, uh, you know, at this time, um, mm-hmm. I had trouble and, like, didn't really have a desire to find... Um, the stimulants or anything, but, but I was still drinking like liquor, you know. So once I had, had had all that experience with the stimulants and and the liquor, that kind the liquor remained. I would go to this liquor store and I would get like a bottle of vodka or whiskey. And so we actually we got married in um, in 2013. So you guys were together for a long time before you got married. Oh, yes. And you were drinking during that whole time. The whole time. And Was she drinking with you? or um, Sometimes. Sometimes. What kind of problems did it create? There was a lot of, uh, you know, waking up wherever I passed out, um, peeing on the floor, uh, you know, you know, just drunk stuff that 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 you do when you when you're kind of in a blackout. Were you losing jobs during this part? No, no? never lost a job. That's wild. So you were able to keep a job, mm-hmm. keep a girlfriend until you guys got married, mm-hmm. without having to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. That's the high life that most people. <laughs> yeah, and I so. <laughs> Most you people know, would I, love to have. <laughs> <laughs> so during this time, I was also I had I had picked up running, also because of my how young I was at that at, at that time. Um, I was able to kind of balance, go out and get a good run in, and and then enjoy my liquor at night, right, or, or beer, and still be able to work, and still be able to work. So you were what we would call a, a functional alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, th there were periods where it was real bad, like where I would be going to work every day hungover. And then there were times where I was into my job and I'm like, I was making good money. And so the, the priority, the priorities kind of balanced out in somewhat of a healthy way, right? But then, you know, I would go weeks at a time where, where I just felt terrible every day. And so you have to imagine like that you're not doing, you're not doing 100% job. Like, I mean, I was making money and, and being sufficient, but I could have been a lot better, right? But it slowly, you know, it, it just took control. And so my wife and I moved, you know, from D.C. to Buffalo, New York, where we were for two years while she did uh, a master's program there. And then um, we did one year in New York City mm -hmm. uh, while she did an internship. And then from New York City to um, Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, every time I moved, I was getting good at like going into an interview yeah. and having a job with top pay when I walked sure, out. It was like yeah. second. It was almost, you know, like the way I, that I got good at taking, doing art history yeah. tests and stuff. It's like I just learned the formula and then I could do it each time. And with each time you do it and you know what to expect, you, you build confidence. And so it was easy for me to get a job. You were keeping jobs. You were continuing to drink. You're moving around the country for your wife's education at this point. She got a permanent position here in, in Houston. And um, I came here, did the same thing, walked right in, had a job. I stayed in that job for seven years. Mm -hmm. So we got to Houston in 2014. This is a year after you got married? Yeah. Okay, so you guys got married before you moved to Houston? Yes. Okay. You're still yes. drinking. You're still working functionally. Uh -huh. All this good stuff is going on. Mm -hmm. huh. And and then well, it's quite alive. Yeah. And then um, my situation at work kind of turned into my original situation at work. Mm. The first place where it was really easy for me to get um, cocaine. Oh yeah. And and. Um, it was this la this last job that <clears throat> where it just got to the point where I couldn't function anymore. Mm. It's not hard to talk about, uh, but some days I would go to work and I wouldn't remember what I did the day before. Mm. I went I went weeks at a time like that where I didn't remember the, the previous day, and then that became normal, you know. And then it got to where I would I mean I would have to drink something at work yeah. to to make me not feel like I was going to pieces, you know? I mean, I, I remember not even being able to, to write. Like, my, my handwriting was all square and shaky. So alcohol was finally starting to take a real toll on you. Oh, yeah, bad. Um, so in 2015, um, I started going to meetings kind of just to, like, show. I mean, looking back, I, could t I can say this now, but I think I didn't really know what it was about, right? I went to some meetings. I was drinking in between. Mm -hmm. um, I never really had more than like three or four months uh, from like 2015 up until 2021. I think four months was the most sobriety I ever put together. I wasn't working a program. I would go to meetings, but I didn't realize how much 
how much work you actually had to do. And I didn't work any steps either. <laughs> so you were going to meetings to satisfy your wife's desire for you to go to meetings? You know, I, I want to be 100% fair. There was no, like, you've got to, no one told me I had to start going to a meeting. I just, that seemed like the natural thing to do. Like, hey, Al-Anon's about people who live with alcoholics or have them in their lives, right? And AA's those for, people. <laughs> for, the, for, that, for those people. And it just seemed, you know, and it was kind of weird because where the Al-Anon meeting was, there was an AA meeting, and that's where I went wow. to my first one. And so fast forward to like 2018, I ended up, um, I wasn't like in terrible yeah. shape, but I was seeing like a, a doctor where I was getting prescribed, giving me Vyvanse oh, and yeah. all these other things that, that, that I, I, it's on me. I mean, I totally get it. I even got the um, yeah. naltrexone shot and then went right to my car and, and started drinking whiskey out. Of, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I did. I mean, that's the truth. That's. The first treatment center I went to, it, uh, I, I found everything wrong with it. Uh huh. Right? I couldn't, all these people were worse than me, um, you know, because I, I wasn't ready. And, you know, the first treatment center I went to, I was there like 25 days, was, couldn't wait to get out, and didn't realize how, what a dangerous situation I was in, being that, like, now I've got about a month sober. I've been to treatment, been detox, which I didn't. When I went in there, I wasn't shaking or anything like that. And then fast forward to uh, 2021, you know, I was told by my therapist and a psychiatrist in the same day, I had a session with one of them and then the other, and they both were like, we can't help you. You have to go to a specific place, um, a treatment so This would have been your second treatment center. Yes. And I like, I didn't want to hear that. Of course, I'm looking for I'm looking for the convenient answer, right? The convenient mm -hmm. solution, and um, so March to 2021, I was to the point where I had to call my boss and basically tell him I couldn't finish mm -hmm. my work. And when I got to treatment, I told everyone like, "Yeah, I I quit my job," and someone was like, "No, you got <laughs> fired," and I was like. I, mean, I, yeah. I couldn't do my work, and they were like, we'll let you sign a resignation form, which to me was like, I quit. But really, it was, I couldn't do my job. I mean, I would go to work some days, and I would look at something, and I just couldn't come up with the next logical thing to do on what yeah. I was working on. And I was scared, like, like it was destroying me. Like, so the alcoholism is finally eating your life. And you went to the second treatment center? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how long did you stay there? Uh, it was 33 days um, uh -huh. residential. And then um, PHP and then IOP. And I remember, you know, I checked in on the 24th mm -hmm. of May, 2021. And, you know, first week or two, I don't remember, because I, I, was, I was a mess when I got in there. Anyway, I remember them showing me my treatment mm -hmm. plan and that I was think I remember thinking like, dude, that's the whole summer. Like, and they're like, this is what you need. And of course, um, but Howard, something, something happened there. I, I, I worked step one. Like I finally surrendered like 
I realized that I did not know what was good for me and that, and that I didn't want to be sick and having like some weekends on Sunday because I would, um, can't get liquor on Sundays. I mean, unless you go to a bar, um, and I remember having abdominal spasms in my bed for like at three or four hours at a time. They just wouldn't stop. And it was just, I mean, I, it's a wonder I never had a seizure. But it, some, something happened when I was in treatment, and I realized that, that I was capable of following directions and, and letting go of things and, like, knowing that, that I have hope. Well, that's the first. That's the first requirement is is the is the desire to really stop, and the desire mm-hmm. to do the work to stay stopped, which it sounds to me like you had some you had enough exposure with AA when you were trying it and not really, you know, not really serious about it or not really putting your heart into it to a point at which you went through the the treatment center, which gave you enough pause, let's say, from the disease to figure out that you really wanted AA? Is that a, fa- a fair way of phrasing that? Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would say. And, and me thinking that that I could still drink normally. That idea had to be smashed. Yeah, and I think everyone yeah. has their days, but like, um, I think I realized that, you know, and I heard this in one of the other mm-hmm. podcasts, you know, someone mentioning, you know, once you ha- get to the point where you have severe withdrawal symptoms, where you you're hallucinating, you're sh- like you you feel like you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've hit that point, you can't safely you can't put anything in your body again. You're not you're not gonna react the same anymore. It's like you've crossed a threshold or something. And like quite frankly, I'm I don't know what would happen. And I'm too afraid to find out. That's a healthy fear. Yeah. It's a healthy fear. It's yeah. the kind of fear that'll keep you alive if you combine it with what you're doing in the program, which it sounds to me over the past two years, I've had the opportunity to watch you because I see you once, twice a week now. And it's really great to see you in this men's meeting tonight. Would you summarize the couple of years that you've had in AA and some of the, some of the the high points and maybe the low points that you got through, because two years is a is a short amount of time, but it's also an incredibly long amount of time to an alcoholic. Yeah, so I, I would say you know, the first year getting out, like getting out of treatment, starting to you know, I did the ninety and ninety. I was doing like two, three meetings a day, and I figured I'm not even going to count because I know if I'm doing two or three meetings a day every day, and I was like it's. I feel good being able to say that. I know I did it. That I'm going to have at least 180 meetings, right? Um, and, you know, the first year was great working the steps, finding out that, that it all is designed for a reason. The book is written very specifically yeah. for a reason in the way. That, and, um, you know, I had a lot of times where I felt re- like finally relaxed for once, knowing that, like I was in, as long as I stay away from the drink and and did, and mm-hmm. did a program and put some yeah. work into it, that everything was going to be all right. Um, but you know, maybe the second year, you know, all, all I know is my the experience that I, that I've had, and you know, like I you heard me share tonight, um, 
you know, sometimes I'm, it's like I, I, I'm just depressed by the fact that I, I can't, I don't have something to go to to make everything go away. But the awesome thing is, is that now that the compulsion to drink mm -hmm. is gone in my response and my reactions to things, physiologically even, like I was ner I'm really nervous about us doing this, but like my heart doesn't race like yeah. it used to. It doesn't, I have, I have a little more control over my emotions and um, I can think more clearly you know, and then I have weeks where it's like the shine has worn off a little bit. Like, like, uh, well, this is it. This is reality yeah. now. And it's not that I like, oh, gee, I wish I could go get messed up now. It's just like I know that I can't, that, that we're not going to do that. But the, the great thing is, is that duration of those feelings is shorter and shorter. And I can get over stuff. Like, I don't get hung up on, oh, I, this didn't go the way I wanted to. So what? Like... Tomorrow's another day. Sobriety is not just this jag up to the top and you remain there and then something goes on and you go all the way down to the bottom. It's more of a gradual up and down and up and down. You know, if you looked at it on a graph, it'd be, you know, sloping, sloping small curves as opposed to these huge increases. Um, but, you know, like it says in the big book, do we have a sufficient substitute? You know, and when you were talking earlier in the meeting, I was thinking, do you have a sufficient substitute? You know, you do. That substitute tonight was this, mm -hmm. was these people, these men, the cheering that was going on for you getting two years. I mean, that's big stuff. The fact that here you are at two years and you're acknowledging some of the difficulties and doing it in a way that helps other people because it usually takes somebody opening up about something to get other people to kind of open up too. One of the beautiful things that you've done is that you you have authentically shared in the meetings that I've heard you share. You're doing it with candor, with humility, and it's it sounds authentic to me. Now, if it's not really, then you're a great actor, but I don't think that that's the case. I think, you know, you're putting it out there. You put it out there tonight in the meeting about how you were feeling, and that touched a lot of people. And, and, and it's not an ego thing, it's that you just never know what you say is gonna make a difference, so you might as well say what's really going on. And that's what you did. And I, that's something I really admire about you. If you can immerse yourself in some service work, I see you stepping up at the meeting we go to on Saturday night, that's good service work. Sometimes the best thing about service work or prayer or working with others is it distracts us from ourselves long enough to realize, hey, this is a better deal. Oh, for sure. So when I hear you say that, I, I just, I want to acknowledge the importance of all that. It's true, you know, if you can really get into the helping others and really be in it, plenty of time opens up for everything else. Absolutely. I, and that was something amazing that once I really started working a program, I thought, how am I going to have time to do this and that? It's, I don't know how it works, but somehow it does. And, uh, it's just like when guys ask, you know, well, I'd sponsor all these guys asking me to sponsor them. I, I don't know if I'll be able to handle it all. And what I say to them is, look, the important thing is some of those guys aren't going to call you. Some of those guys will call you. But the good thing is, even if they all call you, they're not all going to call you at the same time on the same day. Right. And somehow the time will grow 
to fit your availability for it. So to, from my way of thinking, I always tell guys I sponsor, just remain available, mm -hmm. remain a resource for people. And it doesn't have to be sponsoring. It could be any number of different things. I wanted to ask you kind of in closing here, Ryan, about your relationship with your wife now that you guys have kind of, in the last couple of years, you've been on the same 12-step wavelength, although different programs, and I'm, I'm sure you probably keep them pretty separate, but have you seen a measured improvement since, since you got sober? Everything has gotten better. It's, we have so much uh, quality time now, you know? Uh, we, we went months and months at a time where we didn't even sleep in the same room, you know, because, like, who would, who would want to be around me, right? And uh, it's, you know, my life is so full now, and I, I, can't, I can't tell you one way that it's worse. There is not a, a single way. It, it, has, it has bled through everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it feels, it feels so good to say that and knowing that I'm not, I'm not just putting oh, that out there to, to make it sound, yeah. that's really the truth. And, and that's been a big part of what I've gotten out of the program is being able to sort through the true and the false and, and be, you know, say something and, and mean it and know that. That's, yeah. That's the reality, anymore. Not hiding. And hang on to that belief and everything you just said. That is at the heart of this program. Everything that you just mentioned—the improvement in relationships, the the willingness to do the work—that's all really good stuff. I admire the work you're doing. I acknowledge the importance of it, and I honor your commitment to staying sober and being of service to others. And uh, I love you and I care a lot about you and your program. And it's so good to see you two years later from when I first met you. You were, you were really touchy back then. And it's so good to see the, the calmness that I see now in you in meetings. So don't think it's going unnoticed because there are a lot of people around who, who can tell the difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It does. And I was just thinking to myself, I, part of me, I, I don't remember what I might have said, you know, two years ago. or, um, But I, somehow I feel, I, I know that I'm different because I'm, I'm more calm and I have the capability and right. the ability to listen. And if you want to know if you're had. different, ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, listen, I really That's appreciate right. you doing this, Ryan. This this went very, very well, and uh, it went by very, very quickly. So, again, many thanks for doing Good. this. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Ryan D., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more than 125 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. 
By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.